and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 210. Today is Sunday, the 3rd of September, 2016. And this interview is my friend Adrian Swinsco, expert in the customer experience, author of the Pearson-published How to Wow, 68 Effortless Ways to Make Every Customer Experience Amazing. Adrian's also a frequent Forbes contributor, all the while running Rare Business, focused on helping companies to improve their customer service and experience. In this conversation, Adrian and I look at some of the key levers of driving the customer experience, the opportunities for automation, the role of the employee experience, and how to set expectations and stir emotions. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset, that's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T dot com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick and enjoy the show. Welcome, Adrian Swingsco, back on the show. At least we, I think we were just saying we hope you are on the show already. What's great to have you back, Adrian. So for those of you who don't know, Adrian is, uh, aside from being a friend, a great consultant, specialist on customer service, and the author of How to Wow, 68 Effortless Ways to Make Every Customer Experience Amazing. So Adrian, welcome back on the show. How are you, man? I'm very well. With Peter. How are you doing? All right. So if I didn't explain it correctly, um, tell us a little bit better or more what you do and what is your mindset these days? So my mindset these days, let's start for the, the last thing first. My mindset these days is... First day back after a breakaway, so getting back into it. That's my mindset. So it's like finding the rhythm again, which is taking a bit of time, but we're getting there, which is good. So a whole pile of things to do, so getting stuck into it. So that's good. And this is a not part of it. This is not a chore. This is a delight. It's a bit of a distraction, so that's all good. Um, so what do I do? I So I consult, advise uh, companies on sort of strategy, growth, that sort of stuff with a primary focus on how they improve their service and experience in order to drive growth. So that's, I do that in a um, number of ways, so direct consulting, run workshops, do speaking, writing, that sort of like stuff. But I also kind of collaborate with different people on different projects. So like for one, well, we've got one big project going right now, which is I collaborate with a service design agency to do some cool stuff for some bigger firms because I'm only one man and I can collaborate with lots more people to do some bigger sort of stuff. So um more importantly, I get paid to do stuff that I really like, and that's just brilliant. It is indeed. Right. Well, I just want to—I'm I'm sure we talked about it last time, but is there a way to link customer experience and growth? How do you how do you pull those two together in a way that makes sense for some rational CEOs? Well, I think there, there's a lot of studies that are out there that have looked at the benefits of investing in service and, and improving your experience and how it can affect your, you know, your top line and your kind of bottom line. Now, and that's, and also against, so depending on your business model, it's how it can drive kind of growth by allowing you to keep customers, kind of improve your service, increase advocacy, increase kind of top line growth and profitability and all those different things. Um, but also there's other sort of um, other studies that show these are all referenced in the book, by the way. Uh-huh. Keen plug right at the beginning. There you go. Um, and there's other studies that have showed that customer experience leaders outperform public markets by a factor of 30 or 40% over a 5, 10-year sort of uh, life, lifetime. So 
I guess that, you know, if you think about it, just in a very, very simple way, is companies that look after their customers and do great things for their customers and their people tend to get remembered, tend to show up, tend to be kind of like used more often than, than, than others, tend to be more relevant than, than others, and therefore they tend to stick around for longer. And so that's the kind of logic. But then there's all sorts of other studies that support that with some of the, uh, the empirics that we need for some of your rational CEOs. Yeah. You, you uh, talk about emotion a lot in, in, uh, and you cite, and I can't remember the author who says, you know, people don't remember what you do, what you say, they remember how you make you feel. Maya Angelou. There you go. I knew you'd remember. So, Adrian, let's talk about some level setting and uh, the the notion of customer experience. Uh, let's say, how do you define that? And specifically, how do you define that against, for example, user experience, which is also a new term that people are using all the time? So I think user experience is, is you know, my thinking around that is would be, def- I guess, confined to something where, somebody is a user. They use either a website or they use a product or something where they're actually kind of hands-on and they're doing it. They're outside of the, um, if you like, the research and the buying sort of sort of area, but they're actually using something. And so you've actually got to think of them less as a, as a I would say that user is, is a subset of customer. So user is where you get that, that point where you're actually in a hands-on, trying to get something done type of mode. And that... When we talk about UX or user experience, that generally sort of relates to sort of digital websites. But I would I would actually think that it's it probably refers more broadly to things that we actually can use. It could be like your phone or your you know your car or whatever, because you actually you're not customer necessarily. It's that you're using something. You're using something that you bought. But then more broadly, then you have the sort of the customer experience, which then takes into the whole idea of how do I do my research, how do I do the buying, if I have problems, how does that get fixed, how do I can renew things, all of those different things. So it's a much broader sort of feel, I think. Well, it's interesting, as I listen to you, in the end of the day, a user can also not be a customer. Therefore, while sure. a user experience is a subset of the customer experience, if the user is not a customer, then the customer is a subset of the user. <laughs> well, it depends on what you can, how you define customer. If you define customer as somebody that has to pay for something, yeah. then that, that, that would be true. But if, it, if say it was a public service, when you're actually doing research and then you're using right. something, you're not actually paying for it, but you paid for it in some other way or it's a free-to-use yeah, service, right. then there's still a research and buying process, yeah. and then there's still a use part of it yeah. as well. Totally. All right. Um, customer experience. So this is really what the, your whole book's about and what you're an expert on really that's what you spend your days 100% doing, or you know, in the professional sphere. Um, customer service is yeah. is obviously uh, got to be a central part to it, uh, and yet for many businesses, they don't have the customer service rep on the on the the board uh, the board level. It's mm-hmm. sort of a subsection of someone's sub function. Uh, to what extent do you believe a customer service is a part of customer experience? I mean, of course it is, but is it? Is it you know overwhelmingly the largest part? How, how do you qualify the importance of customer service as a part of customer experience? Um, well, see, I think there's the there's the traditional view which says customer service is gets confined to 
your contact center or your support team or whatever. And it's very, it's very much a, rea- a reactive thing where there's a problem and the customer calls up and then you can try and solve that kind of problem. However, I think that over time and as, as service uh, matures and expands and becomes a bit more smarter, as it were, that, that those definitions need to kind of bleed and then customer service becomes less a department or a function and more of a how do we serve the customer more broadly. And I think there's an interesting way of thinking about it is that how we serve the customer is something about what organizations do and the customer experience is what customers experience, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's how those two things kind of butt together. So when when companies talk about we do customer experience, it's like, no, you don't because you're not a customer. Your customers experience what you do, and this, but it's all about how you serve them, and where that might be the information on your website, your kind of you know explainer videos, your the product design, all these different sort of kind of things. That's kind of what you do, but then the customer experience is what you do, and that becomes a customer experience. So it's about an internal and external sort of dynamic. Right. One uh, hears a lot about the idea of being customer centric. Yeah. Having customer at the center of your business, listening to your customer, the customer is always right, mm-hmm. and and if the customer experience is something that they are feeling, mm-hmm. that they receive, uh, what what is the place for the dictatorial type of approach, a la Steve Jobs? Is that a a miracle, you know, one unicorn like, really exceptional situation where I don't want to listen to the customer, I'm just going to give the customer what they don't even know they need mm-hmm. or is that really to be very weary of wary of in terms of an approach and you should you should better be off listening to the customer being putting the customer truly at the center of your of your business so i think the, i think the, the there's i think the one thing that kind of apple and jobs can did really well that many other firms don't do as well is that they were willing to be brave they're willing to lead they're willing to take chances they're willing to take their customers to places that take them on a journey as it were and there's too many kind of companies they talk about being leaders in service and experience and stuff but you know mathematically that's just ridiculous because nobody not everybody can be a leader right and it's only the brave and the courageous that take chances that actually that actually can lead and go on this journey with their their, their their customers. And so I think there's too many companies that run scared of their customers. Yes, they listen, but then they're, they're too much in a defensive, reactive kind of mode. And I think what companies like, people like Jobs and Apple did is they almost transcended that. And they, as you say, they kind of showed them things that they hadn't even thought of yet. What's fascinating about Apple is that they've made so many mistakes and there's so many products that have come and gone. And yet customers completely forgive that because of the things that they've done so right and so well, like many other many other sort of firms, like the, the Amazons, like the you know the the John Lewis's, like the you know the, the Southwest Airways, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. All of the, the, the Nordstroms and all these things, what they do do, what they seem to do very very well is they keep adding things. But also keep taking things away, right? Now in the simplicity mode. Yeah. Is it is it not fair to say that if they have had this sort of quote unquote dictatorial approach, we're going to get into their forms in a second. But if if they th- had it, the success factor is also that they control the entire experience A to Z. Yeah. And and so 
by doing that, they don't have X factors or at least uncontrollable elements like an, a shitty distributor yeah. or a or a other element of the chain that's out of their control. Yeah, and I think that's you know that's true. And, and not every firm has the um, the ability to control their whole supply chain, or, you, or even the willingness. I mean, they have they don't yeah, or the willingness that. or the ability, and and so. But here's the thing is that the if you, like, for example, if you're on an airline and an airline sort of loses your bag sort of thing, it's never the bag carrier's responsibility. It's always going to be the airline's responsibility. Right. And it's always how the airline responds to that and manages that because you're on the journey with them. Mm -hmm. They're subcontracting to that company and the company has to take responsibility for it. So. The, if there's a weak link in that chain, then it's the company's responsibility to manage that weak link or to make sure that that weak link doesn't exist or does its best to minimize any risks associated with that. Um, and so that regardless of what happens, it's your responsibility, even if it's somebody else's business that's delivering that, that part of your service, because it's still associated with your brand. Well, you presumably chose them. Yeah, well, they exactly. are your chosen supplier. And it's like the question of outsourcing or not customer service. Yeah. How how much of you are, are are you a fan of outsourcing customer service and under what conditions? Well, I mean, the, I think there's some great outsourcers out there that do that do a great kind of job. But if you're outsourcing just as a way to save money and headcount and things, ultimately that becomes almost a bit of a race to the bottom. You're but you're kind of chipping and chipping and chipping away. What it shows is that. If you're if if you're outsourcing to somebody who's going to deliver quality that you can't deliver, that's a good thing. If you can and if you save money in the process of doing that, that's a bonus. But if you're outsourcing purely just to save money, then it shows that you're just you're, all you do is you're looking at service as being a cost, and you actually don't believe in serving serving your uh, providing the best service to your customers. And so I think it's an interesting kind of balance. And I think there was a big wave. Uh, of outsourcing or on a cost basis, cost competitive basis, um, because of that's the, people saw services just being a cost and not an, an, an sure, investment. Sure. But then we started seeing people kind of pull things back in, or actually not outsourcing, or outsourcing but insourcing rather rather than going outsourcing to overseas, but outsourcing to kind of local providers that can provide that quality but don't necessarily have the kind of cost competitiveness because they've actually been able to make that. Uh, argument in their head to say, well, it's going to cost us more, but we're going to be able to deliver better service, whether it's them or somebody else. And so I, I'm not, I'm sort of agnostic on whether it's in-house or by a supplier, as long as the quality is there. And it just means there's a, there's a huge opportunity for some of these BSP outsourcers um, to not just play on cost, but to play on quality. We uh, there's often a, a debate on whether one should be customer first or employee first. Mm -hmm. And I say for the more illuminated or uh, enlightened individuals and leaders, that's sort of a, a relevant conversation. Yeah, and and of course it's not necessarily incompatible, but there is a there is a split difference. And so as much as we're talking about customer experience, Adrian, the question I have is what is the role of the employee experience inside of a question of customer experience? Well I think it's in, in intrinsically linked. So I think it's it, you know, it boils down to this the basic idea is that if um, 
if you don't treat your employees well, how can you expect them to treat your customers well? Or how can you t- t- expect them um, to do the best for your customers? Well, because I pay them. Well, exactly, but you might be paying them less than minimum wage, and so you know. So I, I, I always think, you know, you think about some of these big brands, and this might be slightly contrary, but that's fine because it incites a conversation. There you go. Um, so here's the, the thing: is that you have many organizations, many of these biggest, the biggest brands in the world, that have these contact centers. People providing all this kind of excellent service to all these kind of customers. Yet, the, most of the people in those contact centers, or in many people in those contact centers across all these kind of brands, tend to be the least respected and the least well-paid yeah. in, in that organization. Sitting in the worst part, dump, dumpy offices. All of that sort of stuff. And you go, so what does that say about how you, how much you value your customers and how much you value your employees? Yeah. These are the front line. These are your brand representatives, and yet you're paying them just above minimum wage. And it's like it's battery farming type of approach to things. It's all about how quickly you handle calls or how people, how quickly you get people off the phone, you know, first call resolution, all that type of stuff. And it's all very much target kind of driven. You look at it and just go, I'm not really sure that's in line with kind of treating your employees kind of well. And I think we've all experienced it. We're going to call up somebody and you just kind of notice how somebody sort of accelerates towards the end of a call because they can see the timer right. going down and they go, no, I finished. You, I, do you mind filling in a link if I send you? Yeah, exactly. And like, I need to get you off the phone because I need to hit my numbers. Mm. It's like going, well, that's nonsense. Well, it works for the company because of their, their, their the financial controls that they've got, mm. but it doesn't make for a great one customer experience and doesn't make for a great employee experience either. Mm, they feel embarrassed about it. Exactly. But they're, they're working to the rules as it were. Mm-hmm. What we are faced with in this uh, digital world is a lot of choices and a lot of people get unhappy, can express themselves. And so in customer service or customer experience, there's managing the unhappiness and everything. One of the things that we also want to do is use these digital tools to make things more efficient, more effective, and so yeah. we like to automate. Yeah, uh, we're we're sort of in business schools. We like to automate because that means it's probably cheaper, and and more reliable because it's not a human being who's going to go AWOL. At the same time, as Seth Godin uh, blurbed in your book, uh, where he said, "This it's not about effortless uh, efforts. It's about effortful factors mm-hmm. that make the customer experience." So how do you consolidate or justify or put those two together? The desire, the need to scale and automate and the effortfulness about which Seth was talking. Well, I think, you know, what's interesting is that the, if everybody is automating, if everybody's trying to make things easier and things, then are we not all tending towards, trending towards the same thing? And I guess what, what, Seth is talking about is, you know, yes, you can do that. You can take advantage of that where it makes kind of sense sort of for the customer and hopefully also for the, uh, for the business. But sometimes you might have to make kind of choices where you turn around and go, if I want to make something which is distinctive, which is standout, which is going to be talked about, that doesn't necessarily always equate with being the most cost-effective option. So, for example, I was talking to uh, Gary Vaynerchuk uh, at a while Gary ago. Gary Yeah. And so he said something fascinating. He said, you know, look, somebody might pay um, 
millions and millions of dollars for like a Super Bowl ad. And he said, that's just a, it's like an ego trip in many ways. Mm -hmm. You see, you know, what do you get from that? that? So he said, but why if, why wouldn't you just go and take that money, which is a few million dollars and say, why don't you just hire 50 more, take that money and replace it, go hire 50 more customer service reps, an average kind of like, you know, a competitive salary and just put them on the phones and just be, just beef up your customer service. So replace that, which is ineffectual, with that, which is going to go and touch people. Now, that's effortful, and it's different, and it's not automated, but, yes, it will get talked about, mm-hmm. and it makes a difference. And I think that's the sort of thing that I would kind of say is, like, you know what, just because there's, you know, just because there's technology that could possibly help doesn't mean that, you know, um, that it will help. And doesn't mean they say it will help you achieve that level of differentiation that's going to make sure that's going to, one, wow your customers, or two, get them to return, or three, get them to talk about you. A hybrid solution, I would like to call it this, for customer service that you talk about in your book is having customers help each other. Yeah. So let's say that I want to call it the Apple approach, and then I'm not going to mention who I think of for others, but the other approach. The Apple approach seems to be that they've facilitated that with forums up the gazoo. Yeah. And um, they have fairy dust occasions where they actually, they themselves enter in and and participate, if not only just look at what they're talking about. You kind of get the feeling that you, they don't look at everything, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you have others that, other companies that are using are are trying to encourage that so that they put up a widget on their site that says, uh, listen, talk to other customers like you about your problem. Yeah. And and then these other people are being put up there and are actually being given incentives in the form of 10p or, you know, 10 units against a, a new lipstick. Yeah. And, and so you're thinking, well, this is in the company. I can only imagine that they're thinking this is a really great way to avoid having to do it ourselves. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's one particular company uh, called Needle, um, Needle Software, Needle.com. They have a, I spoke to their, uh, one of their VPs, a guy called Scott Pulsifer, I think, uh, ex-Amazon guy, and he would tell me about what they're trying to do, trying to pioneer this idea of customer-assisted commerce. Huh. And the way, the, the way it comes about is that, that it all started with the, the founder was trying to find a wetsuit. And he found the sort of the brand and the styles and the sizes that he wants, but he, there, because there's slight differences, he, he wanted to make sure he got it right and it would work for the right sort of things he wanted to do. And the only way that he can really figure out and get the right sort of input was from other people that had used or bought and bought and used the product. And so that's where the needle kind of thing came about. And so they've got this great. Um, uh, case study where they worked with the brand Carhartt, which in the UK is more of a fashion brand, but in the US is more of a workwear brand. And so, because it's people, this stuff's quite expensive, and they can spend quite a bit of time sort of thinking about it and using it for a long time. What they've done is they've found their brand advocates, their fans, um, and recruited them. And so, with through a app on their kind of mobile they schedule sort of times and things and and it's just the you know, so somebody's coming on a site and then they watch what they're doing and then there's a little icon that pops up a bit like live chat so hey we've got a customer that's bought something like that before if you want some advice you want to ask them questions 
uh, you know, here you go. Now, the interesting thing about it, if you look at some of the, the, the research around that in terms of the trust dynamic, people trust other customers more than they trust what the company says about themselves. And also, they also even trust kind of the other customers more than employees. Um, so these customers, are one, they get paid for what they're doing because they have it's all scheduled in slots and things. But what they've seen is that they've seen something like a 30% or so, I can't remember the exact figures, uplifting their conversion rates just by connecting some of these customers with each other. Now, the, the way that the economics work, it doesn't work with everything because it, it, just, it doesn't work, but it works at that level of considered purchase. And so it takes that whole idea of the Apple thing and forums to sort of another sort of level because it's like real time and you don't actually have to go and find it. The, the solution and the people come to you. Well, and sure. So I think that's a really interesting sort of development. Mm -hmm. Not probably not for everybody, but it's definitely something that's worth exploring if you're in that considered purchase mm -hmm. space. Well, to the extent though they're being paid, how does that really distinguish them from an employee? I mean, the fact is that we tend to be mistrusting of a an employee. Mm -hmm. Because that's what they have to say. That's what they get. That's what they get paid for. Sure. And is it not a little bit dangerous? A little bit like paying for an influencer or a blogger to, to weigh water down that trust factor. Well, I think that that is a, that is a danger, and I think it's something you have to you have to sort of uh, monitor. You'd have to kind of put in place kind of good sort of um, I feel like a trusted sort of understanding around. We, you know, around the customer and the company, so that almost a bit like you say to, say to them, we don't want you just to tow the company line. We want you to actually come from a customer perspective. It's in our interests, and this is where we come back to being brave again. You go, if we believe in our product enough, we believe that we should give you complete kind of freedom to talk about the kind of products that you know, in the way that you want it to do, because that's the value for us. And so it's, it's about getting comfortable with kind of how good your stuff is and, and what people are going to say about it. it. It makes me think of the experience in a restaurant where you go in, you have the menu, and um, you need to ask some advice. You say, so, um, Adrian, you're my server. Listen, uh, what, do, what do you recommend? And, uh, and, the, and, and you say to me, well, actually, I wouldn't take this, the beef. It really doesn't look very good. But I would. I really enjoyed the pork uh, chops, or whatever. Yeah. So you have this ability to actually call out something you don't think that's good in your own product, and mm -hmm. that authenticity. Exactly. That, I think that takes bravery to promote that kind of a speech, though. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I think it's. It, and, and but here, here's the thing: is that you might get another server, at another table <laughs> that goes. Actually, you know what? I really like the beef, <laughs> like the chops. But and that's the thing: is that where when. This is where the, the struggle becomes for organizations where they've got to, if they want to take their experience to another sort of like level, they almost have to, it's less about control and more about freedom mm -hmm. and to allow that variability. So it's a bit like, um, so you talk about restaurants. In the book, there's a, um, um, a restaurant called Hawksmoor and they have this kind of way of being and they talk about this motto where they talk about um, our motto is work hard and be nice to people mm -hmm. and then but then they aspire to a set of standards sort of in terms of performance and what what that means is that every table with every different server gets a slightly different experience 
but to the same standard. Mm-hmm. But so, but it's all part of the Hawksmoor sort of like the way. And I think that's quite an interesting sort of way to get, you know, to, to go about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you see that with, um, you know, you mentioned Apple before. If you go into Apple and you speak to one of their kind of people, I've been in there and I've got had, I went in looking for a, a, um, sort of a USB key sort of thing or for another piece of uh, equipment. And the guy turned around to me, actually what it was, it was a, it was an extender for my old, not this one, but like uh, the one before it, my old Apple MacBook. I was looking for a RAM extension and he said, yeah, we've got that. I said, but he said, here's the thing, don't buy it from us. Buy it from kind of these, this kind of website kind of over here because it's just cheaper and you know, it's a better deal for you. And now that's probably, I don't know if that's allowed or not, but it was said, and here's the thing, I just think that's brilliant. Yeah, They've actually put me or my interests yeah. before it. And so they're like going, okay, that's fine. I'm not going to get, I'm not getting ripped off because not everybody's sort of selling the, the expensive peripherals as it were. Yeah. It's, a, it's a crazy world out there. I want to get into um, one last uh, area, which is uh, the notion of emotions and expectations. Yeah. Of course, really, as uh, the Maya Angelou uh, expression says, it's about what you feel, and emotions are really important. The negative emotions are what one um, probably remembers most, which is why it's so important to manage uh, people complaining. But expectation setting. Mm. The issue is marketers are are a, a dastardly group of people that go around abusing and, and stretching any claim they can, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's in order to be heard in a noisy market. Sure. So the alternative is to, well, set the expectations less and maybe then surprise people. But you're not going to get heard if you say, well, my, my product's kind of good. Mm-hmm. So how do you, how do you go about uh, setting the right expectations to create that good experience? Um, well, again, it's <clears throat> maybe it starts with... Um, Maybe it actually starts with setting the expectations. Because mm-hmm. if I think about it, I don't think there's many people that <clears throat> that do set expectations and do it very well and then set them and reset them or uh, replay them or review them and so on and so forth. Um, so maybe that's an opportunity. I think that some people take expectations as being a, as a default. Um and they're always trying to exceed expectations. You're know, like going, well, I always think about when people think about exceeding expectations. That's fine. But it feels like what you're trying to do is you're trying to earn your bonus rather than just do your job. And so it becomes like the wrong type of uh, what's the word? incentive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, but wouldn't it be interesting if somebody, if somebody turned around or a company or a brand turned around and went, said, here's what we do. Here's what it kind of what it does do. Here's what it doesn't do. Um, here's what you get. Here's what you don't get. Here's how we're going to treat you. Here's what, how we want to be treated. Open things, and that's it, almost like you choose your customers, and they choose you, and then you end up en- enter into this mature relationship. So rather than actually going after, um, as many marketeers kind of do, mass, you know, big brand marketeers do, they try and go after everybody because mm-hmm. it's all about growth and mass and size and scale and what a share and blah, 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 blah. What happens if you actually turn around and when actually smaller is is beautiful 
and actually you chose something which is a bit more selective, a bit more exclusive, a bit more cultured, a bit more mature. And in doing so, that's probably going to create a really, really powerful magnetic force that's going to attract more people into it because they're going to go, oh, look, what's happening over there? They're the cool folk. They've, they've chosen to be in that and they've been picked and everything else. We want to be in that club. Well, what it think, makes me think about, of course, is the uh, setting of expectations with regard to your shareholders. Well, yes. Because if you say to your shareholders, we got dynamic growth, then on the other hand, you, you tell your customers, like Patagonia, for example, you know, don't worry, keep it forever. Yeah. That may not be good for the repeat purchase. Well, no, it may not be, but I tell you what, it's like, it's, what you're not doing is you're not playing the quarterly game, you're playing the long game. Yeah. And you're playing a, you're playing a, we're making a difference game, and we're 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 doing something which is going to return value to our shareholders, but it's equally going to return, you know, make create a great environment for our employees, and also do good things for society and our customers and everyone else. I mean, so I think there's a really interesting kind of move, and something I wrote about a little while ago uh, about that this move away from this the being the whipping dog of public markets type of thing mm. and just trying to change the dynamic. There's been some really brave companies. I think Unilever was probably the biggest, the poster boy that when they decided they were going to stop quarterly reporting and, and turn around and said, we're, we're on this annual trip. And if you don't like it, that's tough. And their, their share price took a, a dip. And then all of a sudden it's on an upward trend again, because the people like the story. They like the approach the, again, it's that bravery. You have to do something. Do, do something different mm. to get something different, mm. and I think that's the challenge with many uh, many players is that there's too many people that don't want to step off and try and do something different mm. because they don't have, if you like, the cojones to right. you know big enough cojones to step off. And well, to, and to survive, you know, a stock price drop because that's, well, exactly. that's a big deal. And to, and to back themselves, and it actually becomes it's more about their career than it is about the business and the kind of the purpose of what they're trying to do. And so it's, you know, if you're not willing to challenge, I'm not saying that everybody should stop quarterly reporting, but if you're not willing to question some of these fundamental things that you have to kind of go about doing in order to achieve that differentiation, to achieve that market-leading kind of growth, nothing should be sacrosanct. You should be able to, you know, question everything. And if you don't, then you're letting your shareholders, your customers, your employees, and yourself down. All right, last question then, Adrian. How, give us an example, uh, one benchmark uh, for a company that provides great customer experience. Um, or, you know, if it's not excellence, because that's hard to pick uh, perfection, but is there is there a story or a brand that you like to call out and say these guys do an awesome job, above average job anyway? Um, well, I'll tell you what. Here's the... Um, Here's the thing. I I don't like. I don't want to kind of call out ones because um, and also because I'm actually drawing a little bit of a blank right now. You just put me on the spot. Well, no. I, I, yeah, on I, top I, of that, if you see, you say one client, not the other, maybe they'll be pissed off. So well, exactly. Maybe let's just say it all goes in that boat of not a no, big deal. I tell you what. I tell you what I do. I tell you what I would say is that the the clue to great experience doesn't always lie in the other super tankers around you. Actually, the great, the, 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 the real insight to other really, really clever customer experience and really, really clever service 
can exist in your local cobblers or your local bakers or your you know your coffee shop or the the local printers or whatever it might be where somebody just does something very sort of special um I mean, talk cobblers. I think then one company that I really like, which I will mention because I also think about what they do outside of work, is I have a huge place in my heart right now for what Timpsons do, the cobblers and the key people, yep. because of how they invest back into the community, how they look after their employees, how they employ uh, ex-offenders, how they're a family business, mm. how they're not run by spreadsheets, but they're run by just going out and talking to people, how they're not run by head office, but they're run by the shops and the head office that are there to help. I think their story is amazing. And I think what they do, there's lessons for businesses of all sizes to figure out, you know, to, to really learn from. And I just think they are, they don't get a big enough, big enough shout out. And I just think what their story is amazing. Most brilliant. Adrian, in good fashion, very clear and lots of tips as the book is full of lots of them as I can attest to. Uh, so um, where can someone uh, best get get a copy of WOW and or get in touch with you? Um, so best place to get a copy of WOW is on Amazon, either amazon.co.uk or amazon.com. Easiest way to find it is to, to, to type in how to WOW Swinsco and you'll find it or how to WOW customer experience in the search bar and you'll, you know, you'll find it. In terms of finding kind of me, um, type my name in Google and you'll find me at adriansvinsko.com I'm also on Forbes and on Twitter and on LinkedIn you know knock yourself out yay hard to find Adrian thanks for coming on the show alright Mr. Thanks man thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue show you'll find the show notes on themindset.com that's mindset with a Y where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of
welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.